We are going to begin a new series this morning. It's going to take us through January. There are five chapters in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so we're going to take five weeks. Each week we'll look at part of a different chapter as we go through the book together. As we go through the series, we're going to learn a, uh, I would call it a memory verse, but technically it's three verses Two of the very shortest verses in the Bible come together with a third verse. So it feels like one verse, but it's actually three. Let me show you our memory verses for the series. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Write that down somewhere, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and we're going to work on it together. By the time we get through our five-week series, we're going to have that memorized, and we're going to be able to apply it to our lives because it's going to, it will have transformed our minds uh, through that memorization. So get familiar with that, uh, that passage, those three verses. <clears throat> This morning, um, I, I, I woke up early this morning. The very first thing that came to my mind was, you can't do the sermon you planned. <laughs> I have planned to walk through the entire first chapter. And I woke up this morning and thought, by the time we get through that whole chapter, It's going to feel like we took in so much that we're going to lose some of the important stuff along the way. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut that sermon in half. For time's sake, we're going to slow down and we're just going to look at the first part of the chapter. What that means is I still have the last half of the chapter ready to go and no way to use it. So if your life group wants to get together and talk about uh, the the last half of 1 Thessalonians, you let me know and we'll get together and look at it. But we're going to look at the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians, as we think together about standing firm. The the book of Thessalonians, written obviously to the church at at, uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, by the way, still exists. It often is used, or it's often referred to with a different name, but it still exists there in Greece. It's the second largest uh, town in, uh, in, that, in that area in Greece. It's a huge town. Uh, it's a big town now as it was back then. It's one of the largest towns back then as well. It's right there on the coast, so it's a beautiful place. It's also a key uh, spot in traveling uh, back and forth, and so there's a lot happening there. Paul, by the way, hadn't intended to go there. Um, In Acts chapter 16, we hear the story of how he wanted to go this way, and the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go that way. So he said, okay, then I'll go this way. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go that way. And so he said, well, if I can't go this way, can't go that way, I'm just going to sit until I find out what I'm supposed to do. 
And then he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a Macedonian, someone from this area, from Macedonia. And that person in the dream said, come and help us. You remember that song we sing every once in a while, send the light. In that second verse, there's that weird phrase that, that we often don't, don't um, understand, take time to figure it out, where it says, we have heard the Macedonian call to send the light. Well, that second verse is talking about what happened to Paul in Acts 16. He has a dream. And this person from this area, Macedonia, says, come and help us. And so he and Silas and Timothy take off. They, uh, uh, well, they, they wind up writing the letter later, but he, he takes off. Uh, Luke is probably with him for some of that. Anyway, he, he goes to this area. He winds up settling churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. After he sets those churches in motion, later he writes letters to them. And that's what we have, the letter from Paul, Silas, and Timothy is the letter to this church in Thessalonica. Well, let's look at it as we begin. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Very familiar Paul kind of introduction to the letter. He starts grace to you and peace. And then verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul has fond feelings for the church. And so he says, every time I think about you, I, I thank God for you. I, I give thanks to God all the time and mention you in my prayers constantly. And then look at verse 3 where we're going to pump the brakes and, and, and camp out for a little bit this morning. I give thanks to God for you. I mention you in my prayers constantly. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. How do we know that he chose you? We know that because, verse 5, the gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that you received that gospel, and then you let it change how you live your life, and then you shared it with others. That's how we know it's real for you. He says, I, I pray every day, all the time, consistently, he says, I'm praying for you, thanking God for what he's doing in that church I know it's the real deal because you received the gospel, you lived it out, and then you shared it with others in a big way. And so he says, I know that this is the real deal. And one of the ways he knows that in verse 3, he remembers before God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfast hope. Those are the three essentials of Christianity. As we think together about standing firm in faith this morning, I want us to think about the Christian essentials. Paul says, the way I know you're really a Christian church is I see these three things in you. You have that, uh, you have that work of faith, that labor of love, 
and steadfastness of hope. We find those three things when Christianity is genuine. He says, first of all, there is that work of faith. It's a work of faith. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he refers to faith in connection with work. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. We know that we are saved only by faith, that you cannot work to earn your salvation. We understand that. But we also know that if that faith is real, then it's going to be connected to works. It's going to change your life. If your faith in Christ is real, then something's going to change in who you are and how you live. Your, the, the work of faith is that, uh, that your faith changes your perspective, your priorities. It changes your life. Matter of fact, some have said that if your faith hasn't changed your life, you better change your faith because you haven't found it yet. You're not there. In James chapter 2 at verse 17, we read, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It doesn't mean that you get saved by having faith and works, but it means that if your faith is real enough to save you, then something's going to show from it. There's going to be a change. That change is going is to be a desire to serve the Lord. I think one of the things that we misunderstand in, in Christianity today, we misunderstand it in our preaching, and so oftentimes folks misunderstand it in their response, and that is this. We think that Christianity is all about us. I'll believe in Jesus so that he can make my life better. And the problem with that is every once in a while you run up on somebody who says, you know what, my life's okay. I don't need Jesus because I'm okay. Completely misunderstanding the point of Christian faith. See, Christian faith is not so much about what he can do for you as it is about what you can do to serve him in response to what he has already done for you. When he died on Calvary and came back to life on that, and was recognized alive on that third day, when, when he died, was buried, came back to life, really, that should be plenty for all of us to spend the rest of our lives serving him faithfully because he's done so much for us already. Christianity is not connecting to a cosmic Santa Claus who can continue to give us good stuff all the time. Christianity is, Jesus, I know you died for me and you came back to life, and now I'm going to spend the rest of my life serving you in response to that. It is a work of faith. In a couple of weeks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead a Bible study at one of the churches in Waco. We're going to look at Daniel. I've been studying that lately in preparation. And there's the, that great story that you learned as a kid that 
still challenges me and, and uh, just thrills me as I think it through. We, unfortunately, call those guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We really shouldn't use those names because those are the Babylonian names they were given. But anyway, the three Hebrew kids that get thrown into the fire, you remember? Just before they get thrown into the fire, they say something that is amazing to me. They say, our God is able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, we still will not bow down to your idols. A statement of faith, our God is able. But it's a faith that is so real that it's backed up by our lives, by our works. Our God is able, but even if he chooses not to, we're still going to live out our faith. We are not going to bow to your idols. It's a, it's a life of faith, a work of faith. Yesterday at Lawnmower Mike's funeral, Pastor Hall reminded us, about the last part of Revelation 2, verse 10, in which Jesus says to the church, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. See, there's a whole lot more to this faith thing than simply walking the aisle or praying a prayer. Faith is... Because of what you've done for me, I'm going to live my life for you. Faith is depending on him to be who he says he is. And so we're called then to to be faithful unto death the rest of our lives. With the promise then, I'll give to you the crown of life. He speaks to us of the work of faith. And then he says that he remembers our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love. Again, isn't it interesting that love is connected with labor? We do something in love. In John chapter 13, Jesus says to his disciples that they are to love one another. And he goes even so far as to say in verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is how you show that you're the real deal, when you have love for one another. On another instance, Jesus was teaching the people. He said, you had to love your neighbor. And so the the legal eagle there that, that, that was trying to trap Jesus says, yeah, well, who's our neighbor? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. There was a guy who was in trouble. He had been beat up. He he had been robbed. He was off on the side of the street. First guy walks by, goes to the other side. Second guy walks by, goes to the other side. Third guy was a Samaritan. Guy we usually don't like to hang out with. From the wrong side of the tracks. From a messed up background. What did that guy do? The guy we don't like? He stopped. He helped, the, he helped the fellow that had been beat up, took him to a hotel, made sure the innkeeper took care of him. Now, you answer me, legal eagle, which one of these was a neighbor? Jesus says, you love your neighbor. The guy said, well, 
Which one is my neighbor? Jesus says, you misunderstand. It's not about which neighbor out there do I have to love. It's that you be the neighbor, so you wind up loving. It's a labor of love. Again, our culture completely misunderstands the idea of love. Love has very little to do with your emotions. Most of the time when we talk about love, what we really mean is that emotional high that we experience in connection with a physical attraction. That emotional high that's connected to a physical attraction. But friends, that comes and goes. And that's not the word here. That's not the biblical understanding of love. The biblical understanding of love, agape, is, by the way, the very definition of who God is. In 1 John, we learn that God is agape. God is love. So you can't tell me that God is just a feeling. Love is not something that you find on the senior bachelor or whatever that silly golden thing would have done. That may be an emotional high connected to a physical attraction, but it is not the biblical understanding of love. Love is a voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Let me repeat that for you. Love is a voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Love says, I'm willing to set my needs aside in order to make sure that your needs are met. Love is that kind of a commitment. When it says that God loved us and sent his son, you see that voluntary sacrificial commitment to our well-being. He loved us that much. He then calls us to that same kind of agape, that same kind of sacrificial love. It's a voluntary sacrificial commitment to someone else's well-being. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. It was basically death penalty with firing squad. The execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, when curfew came, they never heard the bell. So the soldier, they, they went to find out what was happening with the bell and why it wasn't ringing. And in that bell, they found the soldier's fiance had climbed into the belfry and clung to that great clapper of that huge bell to prevent it from striking. So as the bell moved back and forth, the fiancé was beaten, but the bell never rang. Cromwell summoned her to him. He said, tell me why you did what you did. She started crying. She showed him her bruises and her bleeding hands, explained why she did what she did for the one that she loved. Cromwell's heart was touched and he said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. Love is that self-sacrificial, that voluntary commitment. I'm going to do what it takes to make sure you're okay. 
It's a labor of love. Then he says, there's the work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. A steadfastness of hope, an enduring hope. Spurgeon called these the divine sisters. Faith, hope, and love. He said these three things, Paul says, these three things, when they appear in the church, prove that the church is the real deal. That that faith that is a work of faith. Later on we read where he says to them, one of the reasons that you're having an influence on that whole world around you is because you turned away from those idols to follow the one true God. They did a work of faith. And then there was that labor of love. He says you later in the chapter, he says you received us and now you are sharing the truth with those around you. You are loving them in that way, doing that labor of love. And then that third divine sister, if you will, that third evidence of Christian essentials is the enduring hope. He says it's not just a hope but in general, but there's an, a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 explains for us in a blessing, in a benediction, if you will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, Peter says that that's one of the essentials of Christianity. When you have been born again, when you are truly a Christian, one of the things you're going to experience is hope. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a hope that is founded in Christ. We need to understand what that hope is. Because hope is not just the wishful thinking that you and I often apply to that word. Hope is not just saying, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I, I'd like for it to. I hope it does. I hope my team wins. I, I hope they stop messing with the Dr. Pepper recipe and leave it alone. You know, we, we kind of, it's kind of wishful thinking. But when the word is used in scripture, it's something completely different. It's not speaking of wishful thinking on stuff I don't know if it's going to happen. It is, I know what's going to happen, and that gives me positive power to move forward. It's a confident expectation. I have hope in Jesus because I know he's coming back. How do I know he's coming back someday? Well, because there were a whole bunch of prophecies that pointed to him coming the first time. And now that he has come the first time, we look back and we see all of those prophecies were fulfilled. There are three times 
as many prophecies saying he's going to come back a second time. And since the prophecies were fulfilled the first time, and there are three times as many saying he's going to come again, we can rest assured he's going to keep his word. We have that confidence expectation that he's coming. And knowing that he's going to come back again, knowing that he's going to take us to be at home with him, knowing that we're going to rule and reign with him in glory forever, gives us the, the ability to endure this short-term chaos that we have to live through. Am I the only one who feels like this life is chaos sometimes? I mean, the world is crazy. You don't think we live, live in a nutty time? Let me show you what used to be Twitter. I'll sit down, I'll show you. This is, these people are nuts. This is a crazy time. We are taught and expected to be angry with one another. It's a part of our culture. You must choose sides. And you must be angry about your opinions. This is the chaotic time that is so confusing. And beloved, it's temporary. We don't understand when a loved one dies. We don't understand when, when the doctor says, you got cancer. We don't understand when we deal with pain day in and day out. We don't understand when we, watch, when we have to watch our child deal with pain day in and day out. This world doesn't make sense and it's not fair. But beloved, it's temporary. It's a short time compared to God's great plan. Jesus is coming back one of these days. And because I know he's coming back, I am empowered to endure what I have to endure for the short term. I have that confident expectation that lets me keep going for now. At the 2002 Winter Olympics, Apollo Ono, an American, hoped to win his second gold medal in the men's 5,000-meter short track speed skating relay. But during one of the turns, another American skater fell. His fall and recovery only took a few seconds, but it essentially put the American team out of the race. After that, the American team began to skate slower and slower eventually allowing themselves to even be lapped by the gold medal Canadians. The reason that they just went slower and slower, they had given up because they had no hope. The race was lost, no chance. So they slowed down and gave up. Friends, we have hope. Our race is not lost. As a matter of fact, Scripture makes it clear that our victory is secure. One of these days, 
He's going to come back. One of these days, he's going to take us with him. One of these days, we're going to cross over that Jordan River into the promised land and we'll never hurt again. And we'll never watch another hurt. And we'll never shed a tear. But until that day, let that hope keep us in the race. Over and over, the scripture refers to life as a race. Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what is ahead. He said, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep straining toward what is ahead. I'm going to press on toward the goal of the upward call of Christ Jesus. We have hope. Yeah, we go through dark times. But we know the light of the world. And we can make it through. He gives us hope. Calls us to stand firm. How can believers stand firm in a chaotic world? Well, you can do that by developing and depending on the divine sisters. Faith, hope, and love. Isn't it interesting that none of those mentioned are feelings or emotions? Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. None of those are feelings or emotions. They're all active, they're not passive, they're not just theoretical. Friends, you're not going to influence the lost people around you. You're not going to have any meaningful impact on the world around you if you spend your energy engaging in angry culture wars, arguing, complaining. None of that's going to make a difference in the world around you. How do you bring some sense into the chaos? How do you change the world around you? How do you make life better for those who need it in your realm. You experience and express faith, hope, and love. A work of faith, a labor of love, steadfastness of hope. These are the essentials of Christianity. And so Paul concludes his great chapter on love by the way that's one of the mental bookmarks you want to have when I say the love chapter does anybody know where that is where's the love chapter first Corinthians 13 you know how it ends so now faith hope and love abide these three he has just explained what love is in beautiful language and then after he explains what love is in such beautiful language, he says, now listen, there are things in the church that are going to go away. Prophecies are going to stop. Tongues are going to stop. Uh, knowledge of uh, certain kinds of knowledge is going to stop. These things are going to stop in the church. But there are three things that will never stop because they make up who we are as the church. So faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these, 
is love.